Macro Podcast number 119 for April 23rd, 2008, sponsored by MYOB, Small Business Accounting and Point of Sale Software, helping you to mind your own business smarter. Welcome to another Macro Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Breen. We've entered the doldrums-like time of year when things are pretty quiet in Cupertino. To the north, Macworld Expo is long over. The products announced by Steve Jobs have now shipped, and Apple seems to have wrapped up its habit of releasing an interesting update every Tuesday. To the south, the upcoming Worldwide Developers Conference and release of the iPhone 2.0 software in June, and who knows, maybe even a new iPhone model. Apple's quarterly earnings are announced today, but regrettably too late for this podcast. But here's my guess. They make money. Lots and lots of money. Another guess. Their prediction for the next quarter will be that they will not make so many lots of money because the economy stinks. And while some may choose to ease their pain at losing their home or job by purchasing a new iPod or MacBook Air, others may choose a more responsible route. For example, bathtub gin. I mention this by way of saying that this episode of the Macro Podcast focuses not so much on hot topics of the day, because, well, there really aren't any, but rather ongoing issues in the Mac community. The first is the Macintosh as helpmeet for the visually impaired. Most Mac users are unaware that the macOS offers some extremely capable tools for those with disabilities. I speak with Josh DeLioncourt, a developer who specializes in software and systems for the blind and visually impaired, about what Apple offers to these users. In our second interview, senior editor Rob Griffiths returns to talk about his adventures with the Franken-Mac, a Mac-compatible PC that he assembled out of $1,000 worth of parts and a fair amount of sweat and toil. Before we get to those interviews, a little news and commentary. Cloning seems to be in the air, and no, I don't mean the kind that leaves you with a backyard full of identical sheep named Daisy. Rather, there's a movement afoot to produce computers that run the Mac OS that are not produced by Apple. The bandy-about term for such beasts is Hackintosh, and there are a couple of efforts being made in this regard. The first is the OSX86 project, a site providing information about running the Mac OS on Intel hardware found in non-Apple computers. A trip to the site hints that cobbling together Hackintosh is not for the weak of heart nor the inexperienced, as Rob Griffiths will later attest. The second may not be a real effort at all. It's SciStar, a Florida-based company that claims to be offering the Open Computer, and yes, that's its name, an Intel-based computer that the company claims can be had for as little as $400. This alleged $400 version doesn't ship with Leopard, but it can be installed for an additional $155. All this claims and alleged stuff comes from the fact that there's some question about the legitimacy of this company. Its physical address changed a few times within a couple of days, and it was unable to process credit card orders seems to me that if you were going to offer a computer capable of running Leopard that significantly outperforms a Mac Mini, yet costs less than a Mini, you'd want to have this physical address and credit card stuff straightened out before you opened the shop doors, or perhaps in this case, hissed psst, and then exposed a computer dangling from the inside of your overcoat. Yet even if this thing's not a hoax, I predict a very short shelf life for the Psystar. This kind of thing is rich red meat to Apple's legal department, and I suspect that at this moment, Florida's alligator population is dwarfed by the number of Apple attorneys swarming the state. But let's step back for a minute and look at the big picture. What I find most interesting about the renewed interest in Mac clones is, well, the renewed interest in Mac clones. 
When Macs were cloned with Apple's blessing, it was a move born out of desperation. This is a long time ago, but Apple was losing market share, its product line was hopelessly confused, and management had pretty much run out of ideas. Licensing the OS was a notion that had been kicked around for years, and figuring they had little else to lose, Apple gave it a spin. Now, some great computers came out of that effort, but regrettably, none of them were made by Apple. Power computing, despite promises not to, ate Apple's lunch, siphoning off customers who would have purchased Apple Macs with Mac compatibles that were less expensive and more capable than Apple's computers. I had one of these computers, a PowerTower 180E, and it's one of the best computers I've ever owned. But like I said, the clones were not expanding the Mac market, and Steve Jobs knew it. When he returned to Apple, and after straightening things out in the cafeteria, he killed the cloners shredding the agreements Apple had made with them, and the rest is history. So why clones today? Well, certainly not because Apple wants them or needs them, but rather because a respectable hunk of savvy computer users, and I'll go out on a very solid limb and suggest these are mainly Windows users, want them. Though the OS X86 project and Psystar may be tiny thorns in Apple's side, their existence, or at least the notion of their existence, reflects a positive trend. More and more people have run out of patience with Windows and would like to spend some quality time with OS X. Being able to do this on a cheap machine, either a PC you already own or another one that can be picked up for a song, is tempting to those who either have no interest in owning an Apple product, other than an iPod or iPhone, of course, or who have evolved only to the poppiest state and have not yet convinced their inner cheapskate to let them have a real Mac. If you're an Apple enthusiast, this isn't a bad thing. At this point, there's nothing here that threatens Apple. We know that Apple doesn't want to see a wide release of clones, and we suspect that if something like that were on the horizon, a software or firmware update would quickly put such machines out of business. Rather, it adds yet one more layer of sheen to OS X. People want it. And even the most diehard Apple fanboy would find that hard to object to. And now Josh DeLioncourt and I discuss Mac OS X and what it brings to the visually impaired. I'm Skyped in with Josh DeLioncourt, who is the mind behind Lioncourt.com, which is a website devoted to Mac accessibility, focusing largely on subjects of interest to visually impaired Mac users. In the next few minutes, Josh and I will discuss some of the benefits of the Mac OS and what it offers to those with visual limitations. Thanks very much for joining me, Josh. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So let's start with some background. What brings you to this particular field? Well, I've been working in adaptive technology for a long time, primarily because I am totally blind and uh, have been since I was six. So that's quite a while. And I've always been interested in computers. I've been a software developer for many, many years and uh, started out on an old Apple IIe in school. And my first computer was a 2GS and I uh, used the Macs a little bit in uh, high school and moved on uh, later, of course, to Windows because uh, access was was a bit wanting for a while uh, on the Mac platform. And uh, I'm still developing software for the Windows platform and I have uh, come back to Mac uh, in the last few years and pretty much using it exclusively now except for my software development. Okay. Well, now, generally, Mac users are pretty unaware of what exactly the Mac OS offers to those with limited vision or no vision. So can you give us a rundown on what Universal Access offers and how that compares to similar functionality under Windows? 
Uh, yeah, Apple's done a great job of kind of including a lot of uh, a lot of these features that just sort of work right out of the box, or you know, very very simply can get started. You've got VoiceOver, which is a screen reader, um, and for those who don't know, screen readers are basically software that runs and gives a person uh, who's visually impaired or has uh, no vision whatsoever access to the operating system, to Windows, to buttons, to whatever controls may be displayed on the screen. Uh, through speech output um, using the text-to-speech. Of course, uh, I think everybody's heard quite a bit about Alex, which is included in uh, Leopard now, uh, and it uses that by default, although there's a lot of other voices included. Um, They also have magnification options for uh, those who maybe don't want to listen to their computer and they have enough vision um, to use the screen with the the text and controls enlarged, and uh, it has some great enlarging and uh, magnification uh, features included uh, in the operating system as well. Those are those are sort of the two big uh, features that uh, are available to the blind and visually impaired right now in, in OS X. Right now, and uh, VoiceOver came in with which version of OS X? Uh, it came in 10.4 uh, for Tiger. Yeah, that's what I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, in OS 9 and earlier, there was a third-party screen reader called Outspoken for Mac, um, that you could use and uh, was was in in fairly high use by uh, some blind people, particularly uh, blind users who were in uh, recording uh, it, for the music industry for mm-hmm. a number of years because it worked well with Pro Tools and those sorts of things. Right. When OS X came, they of course changed the whole architecture of the operating system. Uh, outspoken no longer worked, and so we were kind of left without anything for. Uh, a few years up until Tiger and the introduction of VoiceOver. Mm-hmm. Now, I know talking to some people at Apple who are involved in this area, um, they sort of feel like the the Mac has been given short shrift in uh, in Windows. You know, people are paying a premium for this kind of service, and, and it comes bundled with the Mac OS, and yet when people write about this sort of thing, they say, oh, yeah, well, you have to use Windows. Yeah, it's it's very, very frustrating. Being someone who I, I'm very well uh, versed in the Windows world, I've used both the major screen readers and several minor ones as well over the years uh, for quite a while. Uh, I was making a living actually working to make uh, reservation software for Marriott International accessible with uh, JAWS for Windows, which is probably the most well-known uh, Windows screen reader. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm very, very well um, versed in those and uh, have been continually frustrated by the, uh, you know, sort of the misinformation that's been uh, perpetuated around and the misconceptions uh, about voiceover and what its capabilities are. And, you know, it, it, it comes right there bundled in the operating system as you said they you know when you say premium for for the windows screen readers you're not kidding they they start at eight hundred dollars and go up from there for the most part so um to have that included in the operating system is 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 pretty astounding well now how does it feel compared to windows software do you really look at at voiceover and think well yeah it's free and so it sort of feels free and it's okay but boy, I sure wish it had you know the X, Y, and Z features that are in the Windows software. Yeah, absolutely. Not. I mean, VoiceOver here with Leopard is basically, um, although they don't number it the same way as they do their other software, it's basically a 2.0 product right now. Mm-hmm. It is very, very capable for uh, for being that far beyond what the Windows screen readers were in their 2.0 incarnations. 
um, it's it's very comparable to uh, you know, as I said before, JAWS for Windows and Window Eyes is the other big one. Um, it's very very comparable to those. It's got a lot of features. You can use uh, you know the operating system very very well with it uh, with no vision. And um, one of the things that I think uh, is a something that's very difficult for people to understand uh, who are used to Windows screen readers is the fact that VoiceOver doesn't need to be what the Windows screen readers need to be. The accessibility is built into the operating system, and VoiceOver hooks into that, and it's a much, much more robust uh, infrastructure for accessibility uh, than Windows has, which is almost non-existent, really. Um, so the screen readers in Windows have to work a lot harder just to give you basic access, and uh, VoiceOver doesn't need to do that. And uh, I, I think in, in most ways, VoiceOver is superior to the Windows screen readers at this point. Now, how pervasive are those hooks? Because I know that um, Automator and AppleScript, for example, are now calling some of those universal access or VoiceOver functions so that they can do their job. But is VoiceOver really everywhere in the operating system, or is it still confined to certain places, and then you hit an application that you'd really like to use, and suddenly VoiceOver just kind of raises its hands and says, ah, sorry, can't do this one. Um, you'll run into that with VoiceOver every once in a great while. Um, it's much less common than it is under Windows. Um, it's a rare occurrence that I download a piece of software that I want to try for Mac, and it doesn't work at all with VoiceOver. Some work better, some don't work at all, but th- those are few and far between. Um, and that's mainly because it's uh, the ac- accessibility of the operating system is, is so ingrained in, in everything that Apple's doing um, right now. It's, it's difficult to write a Cocoa program uh, or even a Java program at this point that doesn't work at all uh, with VoiceOver. Um, it, it's usually it's cross-platform things, things that are using very non-Mac standard uh, you know, software development kits and that sort of thing that, that have uh, issues working with VoiceOver. But th- those are few and far between. I think a great um, illustration of that is uh, because I write Windows software, I do have to have Windows, and uh, I don't like leaving the Mac in order to use Windows. So um, you've got all this virtualization software that's out there right now. Um, and, of course, the two big ones are Parallels and Fusion. Those may be the only two, actually, at this point. Parallels Desktop for Mac is virtually completely inaccessible. Mm-hmm. with uh, VoiceOver. And uh, Fusion, on the other hand, is entirely accessible with VoiceOver. So oh. um, it's rare to find those that don't work. Mm-hmm. Now, I've written about VoiceOver a few times, and and I have to say that I find the interface a little daunting. So how much work is it to actually get the thing up and running to the point where it's functional? Um, it's actually very, very little, particularly if you are used to Windows screen readers. VoiceOver... Mm-hmm. Um, has a much you know it's it's sort of what Apple is um, known for doing. They've they've created the screen reader with a much more intuitive and a much simpler interface, kind of like they do with everything they do. Uh, and that's a far cry from the Windows screen readers, which are, are very very complicated. They have you know dozens, in some cases, hundreds of extra commands that you need to learn in order to use your operating system or your software. Right. And uh, VoiceOver is so well integrated with the operating system that uh, you, you know you, it, it has a lot available to you. Um, but if you learn, you know, maybe 
you know, six to ten commands, something like that, you're going to be using your, your computer. It's, it's incredibly easy to use. And, of course, when you first buy a Mac and you turn it on, one of the first things you hear is a little spoken recording saying, the Mac includes voiceover, this is screen reader. You want to learn how to use it. And that takes you through a tutorial mm-hmm. um, that you can also bring up at any time later that gives you the the basic functionality of voiceover and gets you up and running and it works very very well and um, it's really if if you coming from the windows world there's a, there is a learning curve there's no question because it works so completely differently than the windows screen readers but if you go in with that in mind um, there's a lot less to learn and you'll you'll be much more efficient using your computer oh now have you found just sort of I guess generally talking to people you know who who are partially sighted or or blind that people are starting to migrate to the Mac because of this. Yeah, more and more people have. It's taken a lot longer than I I thought it would. I I got my first Mac back in the summer of 2005, shortly after uh, Tiger came out, which was a little Mac Mini. And uh, I uh, I thought at that point that we were going to see a huge swarm of blind users moving because it uh, because it didn't you didn't have to pay the eight hundred dollars plus for a screen reader on top of the computer and the operating system, uh, you know, just to get to a point where you could function with your computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I expected a, a huge swarm of blind users moving to the Mac, and we didn't see that for a long time, largely because of the the bad press that Apple was undeservedly getting at that point from the blindness organizations. Um, out there, like the NFB, ACB, AFB, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in fact, there there was one particular article that came out at that point reviewing voiceover that was an awful, awful review, and it was full of completely inac- inaccurate information. And that particular article was read by a lot of blind uh, people, and they kind of took it as gospel that, oh, wow, this really isn't something we could we can use. And... Um, that frustrated me and, and a lot of other people uh, who had switched, um, who were using VoiceOver, who knew that it, it was a good system and um, was completely viable. And so uh, a lot of us have spent the last few years trying to sort of educate people and that sort of thing on you know, what VoiceOver is capable of, what its strengths and weaknesses are in reality. And uh, since Leopard came out, things have really started to change. One of the, the big enhancements um, that I think um, started to say a lot for what Apple was trying to do with, for Access for the Blind in Leopard with VoiceOver, they introduced access uh, to Braille displays. And Braille displays basically are these devices that are incredibly expensive, uh, but they have a line of text. Uh, you can get them, usually they're either 20, 40, or 80 characters across that have these pins that push up through holes in the line uh, on the device that produce uh, Braille, tactile Braille. It can mm-hmm. Uh, change and um, as you move with voiceover it's displaying what's on the screen and that was something that wasn't in voiceover with tiger it was something they added in leopard and uh, a lot of people need that it's good for coding if you're a software developer uh, you know you need to be able to see your code and say oh i've got a typo here and that kind of thing so a lot of people prefer that i don't use one personally but i have used them in the past and of course, that also gives access to the operating system to the deafblind as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the fact that, that Apple went to the trouble of making that 
a you know a key part of the leopard upgrade went a long way i think to convincing the the uh, blindness community that you know what this is something we can use and apple's really dedicated to this and they're doing some tremendous things and uh that i think changed um the landscape a lot because since leopard was released in october we've had uh you know a, a huge uh, surge of mac switchers um you know, several people I I know I've convinced to, to switch over. We've seen uh, you know just a huge swarm since mm-hmm. then. Yeah. All right. So let's go outside the operating system for a bit. And um, we're all aware that the iPhone doesn't offer voice dialing or a tactile keyboard, making it, I guess, impossible for the blind to use. What improvements would you like to see Apple make in the iPhone as well as the iPod and other Apple products? Well, the iPhone obviously is going to um, be a tricky thing. I think that, you know, touch screens are the technology that we're going to see more and more devices using. It, it is where the future is headed. It, this is, we're seeing the same sort of transition now that we saw 20 years ago to the graphical user interface. Um, and I think that's going to continue. And, and the visually impaired are going to have to adapt. Um, I think touch screens can be used. Uh, the iPhone, obviously, and I, th- I think in its current incarnation is probably uh, a long way from uh, even being adapted to being used because it simply doesn't have, I think, the horsepower that would probably need to run a text-to-speech engine effectively mm-hmm. and, uh, and offer some sort of a, a screen-reading solution. I think that you know, if they set up something where you, know, you, you slide your finger across the screen and it announces the icons and things as you move over them, you know, maybe tap to activate them, something like that. You probably could get some sort of interface that that worked. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think the current iPhone's probably capable of that. I am hoping that we'll see that in in a future version of it because I I would love an iPhone. Yeah. Um, you know, iPods, of course, uh, iPod Classics and uh, Nanos. They have the click wheel, and I I have an iPod Classic 80 that I use. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have anything. Uh, it's you know, it's just as it came from the factory. And it is usable. It's, it, it's, it takes a while to learn. You have to memorize the menus. The menu options on an iPod, on an iPod click as you move the wheel. Mm-hmm. And the menus don't wrap. So if you're willing to take the time and learn where the menu items are, um, it's usable uh, by a blind person. However, I will say that if you have a massive music collection, which I do, um, it's, you know, it's interesting. You have to be very familiar with your... Uh, with your music collection in order to find what you want to listen to quickly. I, um, I imagine. I mean, other other than that, you just put everything in shuffle and hope for the best. <laughs> yeah, no, I've gotten pretty good at it, you know, because, you know, I, I typically, if I want to listen to a particular album, I'll go into music, go down to artists. The artists are all um, alphabetized, and I, you know, I can usually find, oh, that's Elton John. I actually wanted George Michael. I need to go down a few more to get to that, uh, that sort of thing. Um, you know, they're alphabetized. Once you get into them, you know, you click in, in the albums are alphabetized as well. Yeah. So it, it's doable. It's, it's doable. It's not for everyone. You know, not everybody's got the patience for that sort of thing. But, you know, with a little practice, I've gotten to the point where I can usually find what I want to listen to, you know, in maybe 10 or 15 seconds. So mm-hmm. I think that's pretty good. Um, the Apple TV, I would also like, really like to see uh, accessibility on because I think it does have the the 
the power to have speech output. It is running a stripped-down version of OS X. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I would really, really like to see them uh, make accessible. It doesn't have any, any access features at all at this point. And, uh, you know, I would certainly be using one <laughs> if, if it did. Mm-hmm. And what about the iLife applications? iLife is an interesting thing. Both iLife and iWork, actually, um, Apple has stated publicly that they are working on access to them. And we have seen slow improvement. Uh, um, iWork isn't to a point where it's usable yet. iLife is getting there. GarageBand is very, very well along, actually. Um, not everything in it works at this point, but it, it does work fairly well with VoiceOver. Um, and you can use it even better if you buy one of the uh, the hardware control boards. That um, mm-hmm. sorry, I forget who makes those. It might be Amadia. Yeah, I think it's called iControl. Um, between that and uh, and the improvements they've made with VoiceOver in iLife 08, it, it's it's fairly well uh, usable. There are quite a few visually impaired musicians using that right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the other programs in iLife uh, they they're improving, but they're they're taking a while. Yeah. Um, I'd like access to quite a few of those, iWeb and iPhoto and some of those, but uh, at this point, uh, we've still got a ways to go on those. Okay. So where can our listeners go for more information on the Mac as it relates to visual impairments? Uh, well, there's a few places. Probably uh, the best place would be uh, www.lioncourt.com, which is a website that I help run. That's L-I-O-N, like the cat, C-O-U-R-T, dot com. Um, and that's a website we devote completely to kind of educating people and providing resources and link to, links to other resources uh, for the, uh, you know, for, not just for the blind, but primarily for the blind and visually impaired using Apple products. Uh, they might, might also want to visit screenlessswitchers.com, which is a podcast devoted to uh, the same thing. It's basically mm-hmm. a couple uh, who are both blind and switched to the Mac a couple of years ago. And they talk a lot about uh, access and, and their experiences on it as well. Those are probably the two uh, best resources. And, uh, you know, those are probably the best places to go at this point. Okay, great. And I will put links to those in our show notes so that uh, those of you who didn't have a chance to write those down can click on them and take a look. And Josh, I'd really like to thank you very much for joining me. Um, I, it sounds like Apple is making great strides in this area, and that's encouraging. Yeah, they, they really are. They've done uh, some great things, and I thank you very, very much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Before Rob Griffiths and I talk over his Franken-Mac, a word from our sponsor, MYOB. Are you a small business owner looking for an easy-to-set-up point-of-sale solution? Look no further. New from MYOB, the company who brings you award-winning Account Edge accounting software is Checkout, a point-of-sale system only for the Mac. Created with the realities of retail in mind, Checkout provides an easy-to-learn, efficient, and reliable way to make sales and manage your store. Get up and running in 15 minutes and start spending more time with your customers. Learn more at www.myob-us.com. And now Rob Griffiths and the Franken-Mac. 
I'm Skyped in with Rob Griffiths, senior editor at Macworld, who is very nearly uh, a co-host of this podcast now because he keeps showing up every <laughs> darn episode because he keeps doing really cool stuff. This time, Rob is here to discuss a recent article he wrote called Franken-Mac, What's in a Mac Clone? And uh, thanks very much for joining me, Rob. Uh, you're welcome, Chris. Nice to be back. It's, uh, well, you know, just put it on your calendar every two weeks and we'll <laughs> see you here. <laughs> Um, all right, so this article has done very well. We have, uh, as we speak, 304 thumbs-up ratings on it, and it's because you took one for the team, and essentially you put together a uh, a Macintosh made out of non-Apple parts. And so let's talk about, first of all, what was your inspiration for building the Franken-Mac? Well, it actually, I was not actually planning on building a Franken-Mac directly. I was building a Windows gaming box because I have a bad habit of doing that every few years, and it had been a while. And um, so I was just going to build my latest rendition of a Windows gaming box and put Crisis and who knows what else on it. And uh, in the process of doing that, as I was sort of reading various websites, it seemed to me that it was actually feasible to put OS 10 on this machine. So I thought it would be an interesting educational experience to see what that involved. And, and that's kind of the, the project's genesis was. Okay. So how many PCs have you built in the past? Jeez, uh, probably a dozen, half a dozen to a dozen, somewhere in there. Really? Okay. So the, so the notion of putting together this box and then saying, oh, and maybe I could make it OS 10 compatible wasn't all that daunting. Yeah, putting the box together was pretty straightforward. Um, the prospect of making it run OS X was you know, conceptually more daunting because that's something I'd obviously had never done before. But yeah, assembling a PC, uh, surprisingly, uh, once you get past the fact that you're mucking about with parts that cost you know anywhere from hundreds of thousands of dollars and you can turn them into litter by just making a couple stupid mistakes with a screwdriver, um, <laughs> once you get past that, putting it together is really a pretty simple process of plugging in cables and wires and then plugging in power and hoping you hear a nice beep the first time you hit the power switch. So, yeah, the assembly part didn't scare me all that much. The software side of it was sort of more intimidating. Okay, so starting out, where did you learn about the parts you'd need to build this computer? Um, there are various reference sites around the web that um, will help you with that topic. So, you know, I will say Google is your friend and mm-hmm. uh, kind of leave it at that. So there are places you can go to find information, and, and there, there it's, it's not hard to find. This is a fairly popular pastime, it seems, amongst Mac enthusiasts. Right. So given that, uh, you know, when you conceived this thing, originally you were talking about building a Windows gaming machine, and then you thought, oh, well, how about if we make it Mac compatible as well? How much difference is there in the parts if you want to make it Mac compatible? Um, the, probably the biggest difference is, would be in the area of the video cards because you obviously have to stick to cards that Apple has written drivers for because mm-hmm. uh, you, you couldn't just plug in any old video card because if Apple doesn't support it in OS ten, you probably won't be able to get it to work. Or if it does work, it would be one of those VGA-only things and maybe right. the acceleration doesn't work, so everything's slow as molasses. So, you know, kind of the, the biggest challenge there is just making sure that the video card you wind up with is something that's supported by OS ten. Okay, well, that's interesting because what we have heard for, you know, since the day Intel Macs came out is that these really are just Wintel boxes, you know, that, that Apple has fussed with to make them work. And this appears to be the case other than the graphics card. 
Yeah, and there are some, yeah, de- on, at the macro level, that's definitely a true statement. I mean, the the uh, DVD burner I put in there, I couldn't even really, I think it's I think it's called an LG, but I don't even really know what the brand was. It was mm-hmm. just forty bucks at the local store, and it said it was a DVD burner, and I stuck it in, and it works. And obviously, the hard drives are very generic; they're all SATA two um, connections. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other big difference would be in the area of like fan control. Right. One of the benefits you get with like a Mac Pro is that the fans and the CPU and the operating system are all talking to one another. So when the CPUs are running warmer, the hard drives are getting warmer, they can ask the fans to increase their speed a bit. And the machine cools itself off and everything's nice and happy. On my machine, you flip open the front door and you twist a little rheostat to uh, increase hmm. the fan speed when you think things are getting a little out of control. Gosh, uh, how analog of you. Yes. <laughs> but it, it works pretty well, you know, and I, um, I didn't have to do any tweaking with it. You know, it stayed cool. I have a temperature probe that I stuck inside to get the case temperatures. And the, some of the utilities that track the core temperatures on Intel chips work just fine because obviously I have an Intel chip. So I ran some of those to monitor the core temperatures and, and everything seemed fine inside the case. So it was it was a pleasant surprise, actually, how well it all worked once it was actually working. Yeah. So your computer boots into either the Mac OS or Windows. Would building a Franken-Mac that only ran the Mac OS be any easier to configure? Yeah, I think, I think it, it actually would be a lot easier to configure. There are some challenges involved in getting both Windows and Mac OS X to coexist on the same hard drive and then being able to choose between them at boot time. Um, obviously, on a real Mac, you can do that easily with Boot Camp. And then uh, window, uh, sorry, Macintosh has its own built-in bootloader that lets you pick which one of those you want to boot. Um, I wasn't able to use, obviously, that solution on this machine. So we had to uh, dig around a bit for some – there's actually a Linux program. Linux not really a program. It's sort of like a little miniature operating system called Grub mm-hmm. <laughs> that is on a third partition that handles the booting chores for me. Um, but yeah, so if you just wanted to build a Franken Mac, you wouldn't have to muck with Grub or the Windows installation. And there are some differences in things, um, in, in terms of how the hard drives had to be set up. And I, I just remember reading a lot of stuff and pulling my hair out for quite a bit until it was all just sort of finally clicked and started working. Right. Now, what if you installed two hard drives and one that had Windows and the other one had the Mac OS? Would that be, take some of the trouble out of it? Yeah, and I, looking back on it with perfect hindsight, I probably should have done it that way because one of the nice things about using generic PC parts is obviously you can um, buy these removable drive bays mm-hmm. where you, you put the bay in the machine and the hard drives just slide in and out. You don't have to mess with the power connections. So you can have a Windows drive and a Mac drive and just literally physically remove each one when you're done with it. But uh, since this machine was going to be a Windows machine at the end of the day, I didn't want two hard drives. I didn't need two hard drives necessarily off the bat. So I sort of set down this path of I'm going to partition the drive and, and I stuck with it till it worked. Right. Okay, so overall, how would you describe the process of building and configuring this computer? Um, you know, it's, it's certainly a heck of a lot easier than it may have been in the past. Uh, certainly when Apple was on PowerPC, you couldn't really do this at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that it is all industry standard parts makes it fairly easy to assemble a machine that runs OS X. Now, you really haven't built a Mac clone, and that's you know one of the observations is my machine doesn't look anything like a Mac from either inside or outside, and, and a clone by definition is an exact copy. And, and especially if you open the inside of my machine, it's about as far from an exact copy as you can get. Mm-hmm. It's a it's an ugly mess inside of there, but you know I I probably spent I don't know I would say twenty to thirty forty ish hours of night and weekend kind of spare time uh, mucking about with this thing because this was this was my own project it wasn't a MacWorld uh, 
sanctioned event, as it were. It was sort of my own budget to put together this Windows machine. So I was kind of doing it nights and weekends for the most part. And like I said, it would certainly be much easier if I would have left Windows out of the equation. Right. Now, I, I noticed you set, you set a uh, budget of $1,000 for this thing. Yeah, and, and that was set very scientifically because I sold my G5. I had a dual G5 that I sold for $1,050. So. Ah, so you, you made 50 bucks. In the, yeah, you know, went dinner with the wife, yeah. There you go. So um, you performed some casual benchmarking tests on this Mac, and how did it compare uh, to the Mac Pro? Uh, it compares. I have a 2.66 gigahertz Mac Pro here, uh, quad core, and it it compared quite well on a lot of fronts. It um, the the main thing you see in terms of the the deficiency of the machine that I built is I used a much lower end quad core chip. It's not a Xeon uh, server class CPU, and in in tests that show you the threads, the ability to manage multiple mm-hmm. simultaneous things, um, the Mac Pro absolutely spanks <laughs> the Franken Mac. But in other kind of real-world tests. I ran a Quake 3 benchmark in frames per second. The Franken-Mac did better. And um, I ran X-Bench, which is sort of a generic, not necessarily completely accurate, but at least uh, it's consistent from machine-to-machine benchmarking suite. And I uh, the, the Franken-Mac outscored the Mac Pro primarily due to the, the... I put a better graphics card, essentially, in the Franken-Mac than is in the Mac Pro, mm-hmm. and that helped it outscore it on, on a number of the tests. Um, and I ran a, some Cinebench tests, and it was just slightly slower than the uh, Mac Pro, and that's because Cinebench, to a large extent, is actually very CPU-laden, mm-hmm. and the Mac Pro had faster CPUs. Right. Now, did you put a better graphics card in it because you could? Uh, for example, uh, this, this card was not compatible with a Mac Pro. Well, no, you, you, it actually now is. It's, I put, the card I put it in is the 8800, the mm-hmm. NVIDIA 8800 GT, and right. Apple now offers that both for the new Mac Pros and actually is a retrograde, retro upgrade for the older Mac Pros, and I may actually do that with my own machine here. Um, but they just added support for that card, I think, in 10.5.2 um, was the first time you could get 8800 support in OS ten. So mm-hmm. but the main reason I put that card in was when I looked at its role as a Windows gaming machine, um, it, it's sort of uh, when you're building Windows gaming rigs, you can live at the bleeding edge, which is very, very expensive and very, very good performance, or you can live at like the N minus one generation, mm-hmm. and that's kind of where I'm at. The uh, the new generation of video cards has just come out, so the price on the 8800s has dropped substantially to the point where I think I paid 190 dollars, and I think even since I bought it, it's down to 160 dollars. Yeah, um, for a very nice video card. Yeah, because I I looked at your Quake Three performance test. You were getting seven hundred some odd <laughs> frames per second out of Quake Three. I mean, granted, it's an old game, but yeesh! Yeah. I mean, how fast do you have to go? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. I think that the entire benchmark runs in like one point eight seconds or something. <laughs> <laughs> it just goes. Bah! Yeah, so wow. if you blink, you just totally miss the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's pretty impressive. And so, what other specs did you have in the Franken Mac? How fast was the processor? What kind of hard drive? Um, was a, I put a, a 500 gigabyte SATA 2, I think it's a Seagate, um, 7200 RPM drive in. It's got four gigabytes of 800 megahertz RAM, which is actually faster than the RAM in the Mac Pro, mm-hmm. in my Mac Pro. Um, I think it's slower than the, the new Mac Pros, I think, have what, the 1033 RAM in them? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Um, and the uh, CPU is actually called an Intel Q6600, which was their least expensive quad-core processor. And I didn't actually, I wasn't actually looking for a quad-core, but it was actually cheaper than a lot of the Core 2 Duo chips mm-hmm. are. 
So I thought, okay, you know, for if I was going to do like a lot of video rendering, this would really certainly help. It doesn't help a lot in gaming or day to day use, obviously. But I see now, actually, just yesterday, um, Intel has announced that the successor to the Q sixty six hundred, as well as the Xeon uh, quad core, have now both dropped fifty percent. So wow. the price on those CPUs is coming down dramatically. Yeah, two hundred. They dropped from five hundred and thirty to two hundred sixty six dollars. I think you know, in the infamous uh, quantities of one thousand order size. Now they uh, yeah so Intel is clearly driving um, uh, change in the in the CPU market dramatically. They're trying to get obviously all their vendors to keep moving to the latest and greatest, and trying to clear out the older stuff. So, you know, if I had waited a month to build this machine, it would have been even a faster Windows gaming machine because I probably would have put the I don't know if I would put a Xeon in it, but I would have put the next generation of this. It's called the Q sixty seven hundred. Right, um, would have gone into it. So. Uh, what else is inside the box? I think that's about it. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's amazingly bare bones in there. Once it's essentially got the CPU. Oh, it's got uh, you know something that's new, you know sort of uh, new if you're too new to the world of, of Windows PCs from the Mac side. It's got this heatsink and fan sitting on top of the CPU that looks like it could cool a small city. Um, yeah, I think it must weigh I don't know a pound and a half or something. Yeah. It's got copper tubing and a huge fan and all these fins. But the nice thing is the big fan lets it turn slowly, so it's not like a loud vacuum cleaner. Yeah, I have to say, I look at the uh, screenshots you did where you compared the inside of the Mac Pro to this thing, and boy, is that ugly in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is, there is no doubt that Apple spends as much time, if not more time and money on the inside of their cases than they do on the outside. I mean, when you open a Mac Pro, there there's literally not a wire. The only wire that I can see is, uh, you know, there's a couple little tiny ones on the motherboard for Bluetooth and airport, and then there's one power cable that runs to my video card. Mm-hmm. But, you know, excluding those, all the wires, like for the hard drives, if you want to add a hard drive to a Mac Pro, you just pull out the sled, you screw in the drive, and you slide the sled back in, and it connects to the SATA connector. Right. Well, in Franken-Mac, I open up the case and I stick my hand in that mess of wiring and I try to find a SATA connector and I drag it down to the drive bay and plug it in and hope not to leave some of my skin inside the case uh, when I close exactly. it back up again. Yeah, I was going to say, and then you cut yourself and then yeah. you, you swear. Yeah, well, and then, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it is definitely a good case of case um, showing exactly why there are some differences in the cost of the two machines. I mean, the, the inside of the Mac Pro, of any Mac, I mean, even when you open something like a Mini where – you know, they don't really have to engineer for beauty. The inside of a Mini is just uh, – it's a model of, of very nice engineering. Right. Uh, everything is in there, and it's packaged well, and it fits, and it actually looks pretty sharp. And you open that thing, and I, I think I wrote in the article, I mean, my first car was a 73 Chevy Vega, and its engine bay was scary in terms of the number of loose wires. Mm-hmm. And there, there were wires that went nowhere and just were kind of dangling. It's like <laughs> – did I lose something or did they just not finish? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I kind of get that feeling when I look inside the Franken-Mac. Now, and that's not to say that I'm sure I'm getting slammed on some of the PC-centric sites. You can build gorgeous PCs mm-hmm. on the inside. Uh, but it takes a lot of time and a lot of talent and a lot of effort and more money than I invested you know, you have to wrap all that spare cabling in something. You have to route it somewhere. You have to buy a, a case that has snap-in drive bays with pre-connected power connectors, and all that stuff costs money. So the trade-offs are obviously time and money against uh, pretty inside. Right. Okay, and I did want to get to that subject. So price in the spirit of adventure are obvious reasons for building a beast like this. But what are the arguments for paying a relative premium to Apple instead? 
Well, obviously, we talked about the inside of the case and the, and the ease of doing anything from adding a hard drive to adding RAM. I mean, if you add RAM in a Mac Pro, it, it's on two daughter cards, not daughter cards, two small cards. You just slide out, snap the RAM in, slide the cards back in. Again, on my machine, I have to sort of finagle my hands down, and the, the RAM slots are right by that monstrous CPU-fan-cooler combination, so I have to be careful not to bend any of the fins or skin a knuckle. Mm-hmm. Um, but then once you get everything together and it's running, you're like, well, what's the difference? Well, the big difference is what I have is I have a machine that has parts from uh, – I bought them from four vendors, but there are probably parts from eight different manufacturers. Well, each of those manufacturers has their own warranty. My machine is not warrantied by anybody. So, you know, if a part goes bad, I have to myself figure out which part it is, contact that manufacturer and or vendor to get a return authorization to return the part to get it replaced. And, you know, while that's going on, my machine is down. Uh, and, and it's not like Apple with a nice FedEx. You know, the guy shows up with a box. You give him the machine and two days later or a week later, whatever it comes back, this would be whenever the part comes back, the part comes back and then you got to put the machine back together again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, warranty and service would be one area of, of concern. And then obviously OS X itself, the, the version that you wind up building when you build one of these things is definitely not something Apple supports. And Apple updates will likely break it. So you're kind of stuck with a machine that's either in the area you built it in or you have to do a lot of work over time to bring it forward. Um, and, that, and that's why, you know, it's, it's, this is not clearly something that I think a typical consumer is going to do. And, it, and to be honest, it's not something I would typically do. It was an opportunity at the time I did it. But I'm very comfortable with the machines from Cupertino, and I think the amount of money they charge for what they offer. You know, somebody say, well, it's $3,000 for that Mac Pro, and it's $1,000 for the machine you built. Right. It's like, yeah, but my machine doesn't have the Xeons. It, it won't do as well. It will be very interesting to see when we get these Macworld benchmarks done uh, how well it does. Because I think it's going to sort of have some issues when the multitasking stuff comes into play and it's mm-hmm. asked to do a lot of things at the same time. So I did not build the equivalent of a Mac Pro, even though in a number of benchmarks it performs equivalent with a Mac Pro. Right. And also I noticed from the pictures and some of your description, there's um, you can't put as much RAM into this as you could uh, yeah. Mac Pro. Yeah, I have four. There are four RAM slots on this motherboard, and there are eight in the Mac Pro. And uh, obviously, again, you can solve that on the PC side. There are motherboards that have eight RAM slots, but mm-hmm. again, you'll spend more money. Right. Um, and then the other difference is, you know, my my OS ten seems to run okay when it's you know up and running on the machine, but there's strange little quirks. Like sometimes when I shut it down, it doesn't shut down completely, and I can still hear the fans and the hard drive spinning, and I have to manually press the power off button. Um, you know, I didn't experience any crashes outside of that oddity. So that, you know, the system itself seems pretty stable. But the fact that you can't run software updates, you're not supported by Apple, you have eight parts from ten vendors inside the box, uh, you know, are all reasons why I, I can't see anybody who depends on a machine like this to run their business mm-hmm. ever putting it in, into the production flow. Right. It just wouldn't make any sense. Okay. Well, here's the really important question, and we'll finish <laughs> up with this. How does Vista run on it? <laughs> Uh, actually, Vista, how does it run or how is it using it? Um, no, actually, yeah, that's a good, or, or are you just using XP like everybody else with a Windows machine? No, actually, because I, there, there actually is this uh, amazingly addictive game called Crisis, and it has some nice visual effects that work best in DirectX 10, which you can only get uh, in Vista. Right. So I definitely wanted to put Vista on it. Uh, well, 
I had to put Vista on it. <laughs> I won't actually say I wanted to put Vista on it. I wanted to put XP on it. Um, but I put Vista on it, and it actually runs reasonably snappy. I haven't ever felt like it's slow or bogging me down. I have been just amazingly thankful that I use OS ten every day because yeah. – uh, you know, I, I, the other day I had to create. I wanted to create a new folder inside of the, I think the program files folder, mm-hmm. um, which is the equivalent to wanting to make a new folder, let's say, in one of the system folders in OS 10. Well, in OS 10, you do that and it says, "Hey, you don't have permission. Can you please authorize?" And you say yes, and you make your folder and you rename it, and you're done. Um, well, on Vista, it came up and it said, I don't remember the exact sequence, but I said, like, create a new folder here. And it said, hey, this is a system-owned folder. Are you sure you want to do this? And I said, yes. And then it said, hey, Vista needs, it's that UAC dialog, the mm-hmm. user access control. Yeah. So then that dialog came out and said, no, no, we really do need your permission to do this. So I said, okay. And then it made the folder, but it left it as a untitled or whatever it is that Windows calls new folders. Mm-hmm. So I went to rename it. And it said, are you sure you want to rename this? This is a system <laughs> folder. It's like, oh, crud. So I said, yes. And then it said, oh, we need your permission. I'm like, ah! <sighs> yeah. You, know, you, you end up doing that 10 or 15 minutes for everything that like takes 10 seconds on a Mac, and you go, goodness, how do people put up with this? I mean, it, it, you know, if I could, I would probably downgrade it to XP. It's just... Or, or what I will probably realistically do is I'm going to go research on all the Windows-centric sites to figure out how to disable UAC and do, disable all these things that Windows will put in there to protect me that do nothing more than annoy me. Right, right. Yeah, you and every other Windows user on Earth. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much for your take on the, uh, on the PC side of your, of your Franken-Mac. <laughs> and uh, for those who want more information, where should they look? Well, you can start with the the Franken Mac article. Actually, has some uh, some some links, and I think comments have some links to other sites. And um, yeah, start reading there. And if, I mean, like I said, this is not something that I would recommend anyone necessarily do to save money and build a better machine. It just it was an interesting science experiment. But mm-hmm. there is information out there to be found, and it's a fairly popular pastime. So a little bit of uh, searching will go a long way. And it will. So thank you very much, Rob, for joining me, and best of luck with your uh, Frankenmech. Thank you, sir. That wraps up this edition of the Macro Podcast, sponsored by MYOB, Small Business Accounting and Point-of-Sale Software, helping you to mind your own business smarter. I'd like to thank Rob Griffiths, Josh DeLioncourt, and, of course, you for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to drop us a line at podcast at macworld.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 415-520-9761. This is Chris Breen reminding you that you can find more Apple, Mac, iPod, iPhone, Apple TV, and technology news, views, and information at macworld.com. Thanks very much for listening. See you next time.